I want us to continue with that mindset of keeping our eyes on Jesus and what I love about these parables is that they give us such an opportunity to do that because these are snapshots from the, the life of Christ on the earth and you know, how He taught and, um, and, and the way that He did that and um, stories that He told and even the circumstances in which He told them. So it gives us a real opportunity to, to, to truly put our focus on Him as we study these. To set the stage for this parable and what's happening, we need to back up just a few verses, what wasn't in the reading. And if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke 7, and we'll start with verse 36. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to gift you one today, so if you'll let me know or Nick know before you leave, we'd love to grant you a, give you a, a copy of God's Scriptures as a gift from our church and here's the context of this parable, the two debtors. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So that's the context of the parable that Lamar read for us. Jesus is invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house by a man named Simon. Now we are used to seeing pictures in the Bible of Jesus dining with sinners, going into homes in which the religious people had a real issue with, but Jesus also dined with Pharisees. His love was for all people. He was here to shine the glory of God and to explain who He was and about the forgiveness of sins. And that was open to all. We're not exactly sure why Simon invited him. As a matter of fact, this is the only place in all the Bible that Simon the Pharisee is mentioned. This is the only place. Luke is the only Gospel writer who recounts this particular parable and story. Luke was a historian. He wrote for the purpose of giving a, a detailed account of the life of Jesus, and so he has shared this one with us. But verse 39 indicates that Simon has not made up his mind about Jesus. Because when he sees what is happening, he immediately says to himself, okay, well now wait a minute. If this guy was a prophet, if he was from God, if, 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 this was, if he was really on a mission from God, then he would understand what is happening right now. He would understand who this woman is and he would reject her. So by that we know that he has not made his mind up about Jesus. But Jesus is there for a purpose. In this home, among these guests, he is going to make a powerful declaration about who he is because the very last verse 
In this section, in this story, he looks at this woman and says, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Meaning, Jesus was saying to everyone in this room, I am God. I can forgive sins. But there's also a profound teaching through this parable. The primary recipient is Simon. But we can assume Jesus did this publicly in the room in which other people there heard this exchange, and certainly it has been written down for us. So what is the parable that Jesus tells in response to what Simon was thinking? That's important. Jesus did this all the time. But Simon had said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know who this woman was. And Jesus replied to him because Jesus knew what he was thinking. So Jesus says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. He says, say it, teacher. A creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? In Jesus' story, one person owes 50 denarii, about two months' wages for a day laborer in that day. So a significant amount of money. You owe someone about two months of your salary. But then Jesus says that creditor also has another debtor, and that debtor owes 500 denarii. That would represent almost two years of wages. So one person owes him what would take him two months of just working and giving everything he had to him. One person owes what would take two years of working and giving everything he had to pay it off. But neither could pay. The one who owed two months worth of his salary and the one who owed two years worth of his salary, neither one could pay. Both of them were subject to punishment and legal action for not paying their debts. This creditor could have them put in jail He could do all kinds of things to oppose them because of the debt that they owed him. But this creditor is a generous and benevolent creditor, and he forgives both of their debts. He doesn't extend the time that they have to pay it back. He simply says to both of them, your debt is forgiven. So Jesus asked Simon a question. At the end of that process, when both of these debtors have been forgiven, which one will have more affection for the man that has forgiven their debt. Which one will be filled with more gratitude, more thankfulness? And Simon, rather reluctantly by the language of verse 43, I suppose, kind of reluctantly answers the one he forgave more. And Jesus affirms, you are right. You have judged correctly. We can obviously understand when we start trying to dig into the meaning of this parable that the creditor is God. And on the surface, it may seem that what Jesus is saying is that some people owe God more than what others owe Him. That some people have a greater debt to God and some people have a lesser debt. Some people have sinned more and therefore their sin debt is great and some people have sinned less and so their sin debt is smaller. 
But I want to address that first by reminding us that the Bible says every one of us owe an incalculable debt. Every single one of us owe a sin debt to God that we cannot pay. Ecclesiastes 7.20, the Old Testament affirms this. And Solomon writes, There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. No one. Everyone has sinned. Everyone stands before God broken and a sinner, and they owe Him a debt. Romans 3, 22 and 23 in the New Testament affirms this as well. The only way that you can become righteous is through faith in Jesus Everyone who believes in Him will be made righteous because there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. We all owe a debt we cannot pay. Now, I don't believe the Bible says all sins are equal. I actually think there are passages that tell us that not all sins are equal. Some sins have a greater effect on us than others. Some sin have a greater impact on other people. Some sin carries greater penalties on earth. You might can even make the case that some sins will carry greater judgment before God. And yes, some people have sinned more than others. That's a reality. But the point of the parable is, no one can pay their debt. What difference does it matter if you owe someone $10 or if you owe someone $10,000 if you are penniless? What difference does it make? You can't pay your debt. And everyone who owes a debt is subject to the same legal action. And before God, every person who owes Him a sin debt is subject to judgment. So what does it matter what you owe if you can't pay? I think that is the heart of what Jesus is saying here. If you are a person who has sinned greatly, and you know that, and you have years and years and years of debt that you have accumulated in sin before God, and you grieve over that, and if you could go back, you would change it all. You regret so much about your life and what you've done and, and the sin that you've committed. There is great relief in this parable. You can be forgiven. It doesn't matter the size of that debt. You can be forgiven. It is a matter of going to Jesus and asking for forgiveness. As my mentor used to say, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. His love for you is unchanging. Flee to Christ and receive that forgiveness. If you're a person... It's the exact opposite. If you're really honest with yourself, you don't really feel like you owe God much. You've been pretty good. Especially when you compare yourself to others. You don't really feel like you have a great debt. Most of your life, you feel like there's been a good bit of godliness. 
This parable should be quite convicting. Because you owe a debt you cannot pay. It is foolish to try to soothe our own spiritual conscience by making comparison to others. Because on the day of judgment, we're not going to be compared to other people. We're going to be compared to the glory of God. And we all fall short of that. That passage in Hebrews 9 this morning, the reason I want us to look in that, I I put some words in italics, but I put some in bold. So if you still have that worship God, look at Hebrews 9 again. There were gifts and sacrifices offered that cannot perfect a worshiper's conscience. That was the whole point of that that old system. Living in such a way that you think, if I'm just good enough, if I just do enough good deeds, if I just offer enough sacrifice, then that will clear my conscience before God and I will be relieved of my guilt. And God says that's not sufficient. That'll never work. You might be able to make yourself feel better for a short amount of time. But ultimately, that guilt is still there. There's only one way for the conscience of a a worshiper to be eased and cleansed. And that is, if we receive what Christ has done, who offered Himself without blemish to God so that He could clear our conscience, so He could free us of guilt, so that we might serve the living God. Only faith in what Jesus has done can truly soothe our conscience. How does that work out practically? If you ever go before God and you think, I know everything that I've done in the last few days, in this last week, I do not feel worthy to be here. And honestly, if we're aware of ourselves, we should feel that way sometimes. Our reminder is not, but I did this, I read my Bible, I prayed, I gave... Our reminder is Jesus. Jesus has cleared my conscience. I can can ask for the forgiveness of my sins. I can confess what I've done. He will forgive me. That is my hope. He is the one that assures me it is okay to be before God and to pray to Him. Think about this parable. Who felt confident because of their good works? Simon. Simon. Simon was confident. Who got publicly rebuked in that room? Simon. Who felt the weight of their sin? Who fled to Jesus in faith? Who put themselves to open shame in order to worship Christ? Going to a place they knew they should not be, that they would be ridiculed. But they went there anyway to flee to Jesus. Who did that? The sinful woman. Who did Jesus defend? Her. Every person in that room was probably thinking what Simon did. And God stood up in that room and corrected them all. He affirmed she was the one in the right, not them. This woman, a well-known sinner, worshipped Christ. And I think that is the heart of this parable, worship. If you're a note taker, look at this life truth in your handout and we'll fill it in together. It's a little long. We're going to kind of walk through it. 
Affection for God is born and stirred in a true worshiper as they obtain more of a personal realization of God's grace toward them. Affection for God is born in a true worshiper as they obtain a personal realization of God's grace toward them. I want you to look at verse 47. Kind of to me the thesis of what Jesus is teaching in this parable. I tell you her many sins have been forgiven. That is why she loved so much. The one who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus makes a statement about this woman to everyone in this room. The reason she's doing this, the reason she is pouring out love for me and affection for me is because her many sins have been forgiven. Her sins are not forgiven because she's doing this. She's doing this because she believes that I will forgive her sins. That woman was more aware than anyone in that room what she had done. She was more aware of any of them, the sin debt that she had before God. And we don't know the backstory. We don't know how she came to know about Jesus. We don't know what caused her to have that faith. But we know that the moment she heard Jesus was going to be in that house, a place that she would never be received, never... No one in that room would have ever been seen in her presence. She said, I'm going to that house. And I'm going to find Jesus. And I'm going to pour myself out to Him because I believe He'll forgive me. And that faith that she had in Him and what He was willing to do for her produces worship that is fueled by affection for God. And look, it is a strange picture of worship. It, would, it may be a little awkward to read. It was awkward in that room. She did not care. She was pouring herself out to Christ because she believed He would forgive her. And this whole picture, she is contrasted to this Pharisee and all the Pharisees in that room who trust in their good deeds. They had very little awareness of their sin. She knew her sin. They did not know their own. Her sin was visible. Theirs was not. Everyone in that town knew who she was. No one in that room knew who they were. They were prideful and self-righteous. Trusting in themselves and their own good deeds and their own good works. And Jesus affirmed and defended her and He rebuked them. That hard-heartedness is demonstrated in verse 39. Simon said to himself, if that man, if he was really a prophet, if he was really from God, he would know who's touching him. She is a sinner. Simon assumed, if he was from God, I know what he would do. He would reject her. He would push her away. He would not let her come near him. He would be like me. Godly and pious. That's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness makes us assume that we know how God will treat others. Self-righteousness makes us assume we know how God would respond to a sinner. How God would respond to a situation. In your handout, this parable asks of us how aware 
we are of the value of grace we are given. This parable puts that question before us. How aware are you of the value of grace? Because the depth of our awareness impacts the depth of our affection for God. If you don't realize what God has done for you, you will worship very little. If you do not have an awareness of the debt that you owe Him and of the grace He has given you, then your love for Him and your affection for Him and your worship for Him will be small. Because the one who forgives little, the one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is a, the least aware of their place before God is the person who I have least affection for God. But the more aware that we are of grace and the debt that we owe God, the more we will worship because the more we will love Him, the more we will be thankful for what He has done. We'll kind of walk through the life truth. Affection for God is born in a true worshiper. And pause there and say the aim of a true worshiper is to have deep affection for God. If you want to be a true worshiper who serves God, your aim should be love God deeply. That's the goal. Christ has offered Himself, according to Hebrews 9, to cleanse our consciousness. What does that mean? It means to make us aware of our sin and to make us aware of the grace that we've received so that our conscience can be cleared before God. And, and Jesus does that. He clears our conscience so that we can serve God. What does it mean to serve God? It means to worship Him. What we do on Sundays when we sing, we raise our hands, we lift our voices, yes, that is worship. But what you do with your whole life, how you conduct yourself, how you live in response to what God has done for you, that is worship. True worshipers want to love God. What I'm about to say may sound somewhat heretical. But the goal of the Christian life is not simply to obey God. The goal of the Christian life is to love God and hunger for Him so much that your natural response is to want to serve Him and worship Him. If you start off with the aim of being obedient... You'll end up in a place of thinking, I'm good and I'm godly. You start in a place of knowing I am not worthy and I need Christ and He has done this for me and I want to love God and hunger for Him and the natural output of your life will be worship. This affection for God is born when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to make us aware of our sin. When Paul talked about his ministry of preaching in Acts 26, that's what he said, I'm going to do. With the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to preach to open people's eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. No one will ever turn to God with true affection without a personal realization of their own sin debt. It doesn't matter what you say to them. It doesn't matter how you scare them. It was Paul Washer that used to say, you know, so many Gospel presentations is filled with the threats of judgment against people. Just like we want to scare people into heaven. 
And listen, judgment is real and we should preach about that. But Paul Washer went on to say, you can, set a, you can set a field of vipers on fire and they'll flee, but they're still vipers. People's hearts are not changed by simply being scared of judgment. Their hearts are changed when their eyes are open to the debt they owe God and the realization of the grace that He offers them. And they flee to Him. When you can say right now in this room, you can say, I know, I know I, know, I owe God a debt I cannot pay. I know that. I know if it's up to me to take care of that debt to one day be with Him, I know I, it's hopeless. I believe Jesus paid my debt. And I believe and I put my faith in Him and I'm so thankful for what He has done because no one else knows everything that I've done but I know what I've done and He has promised me forgiveness and I love Him with all of my heart and all I want to do the rest of my life in the hours and the days and the months and the years that He gives me is worship Him and make Him known. That's what it looks like. And Jesus will help you. He will defend you from shame. He will defend you from criticism. He will defend you from judgment, just as He did this woman. I put in parentheses in this life truth that it's not just a one-time thing that happens, though. Affection is definitely born for God when we realize personally our sin debt and, and the grace that God has given us. But we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Some of us in this room have been Christians for a really long time. And praise God for that. But if you forget the debt you owed and the place from which God has brought you, even as you try to walk with Him, your affection for Him will wane. Ephesians 5.11 says we should expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Christians should look to try to shine light on unfruitful dark works. Church, that has to start with us with ourselves. We should seek to engage with God in His Word and prayer and community, the means by which He has given us to grow, so that the unfruitful works of darkness that are still in us are continually exposed and brought to the light so that we can confess and be forgiven of those sins. The more light shines in us, the more we will be aware of our sins and our self-reliance and our self-righteousness and the more we will grow in gratitude. So I'm going to lay it before you this way. The less you remember what God has done for you, the more you trust in your own good works, the less your affection for Him will be. The less you will truly worship. If you're sitting in this room today and you, you would just say to yourself, I, I feel like I am in a season where my affection for God is not great. I do, I do think I'm a Christian. But love for God, love for Christ, gratitude for what He's done, I don't think it's there. Then I would commend to you this morning that it may be that you have forgotten the sin debt that you owe and the grace He has given you. And you need to remind yourself of that. The more we mature in the faith, the more we grow in our realization of that debt, the more we find His grace precious to us. Next week is going to be the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'm going to connect these two.
Because this starts with love for God. But I would say to you, if you find that your love for others is low, that you are quick to criticize other people and their sin and their mistakes, it may be that you have forgotten the debt you owe. It may be forgotten that it may be that you're you're relying on your own good works and you're looking at other people and their sin. You've forgotten what God has done for you. It's really hard when you owe a debt, you're standing next to someone else who owes a debt. They may owe a bigger debt than you do, but what difference does it make if both of you can't pay? You're on the same field of play. So I want to ask you a question. I ask this of myself too. I've been thinking about it this week. So it's not just for you, but it is one I want to pose to you. And it's just for you to answer. When is the last time you can remember being so moved by love for God, thinking about the forgiveness of your sins, that you were caught up in some act of spontaneous worship? That you were so moved by what He has done, thinking about how good He has been to you in grace, that you just broke out in some form of worship. And you did something that, honestly, if other people had been around, it would have been really awkward. I want you to note three things about the worship of this woman in your handout. Three things about her worship. Worship that comes from gratitude. First of all, it was personal and authentic. The worship she offered was personal and it was authentic. This woman came in, she knelt before Christ, and she wept. That was her response to Jesus. She cried in His presence. She cried so much that her tears were falling at His feet. And and the dirt on His feet that had not been washed off by His host was starting to smear. And she sees that, so she takes her hair and she begins to wipe away that dirt and that mud. And yes, that was unusual. But it was something she did as an act of displaying her love for her Savior. It was personal to her. It was personal to Him. No one told her to do it. No one had modeled that. It was a very authentic act. Now, let me say, that doesn't mean that I think that any act of worship that we might do is suitable for a corporate gathering. And certainly any act of worship that we do should not be in some way that is opposed to God's Word. But outside those limits of something that would disrupt the church or something that would be opposed to God in a sinful way, you and I need to be very careful to not put limits on how someone else worships God. You and I need to be very careful to not put our limits of what we think is proper on someone else as they are expressing personal love for Christ. Even if it looks unusual to us because we might find ourselves fighting the Holy Spirit and what He is doing in someone's life. And you and I need to consider how and when do I authentically worship? When do I have those moments where just I am so overcome by God's grace and what He has done that I just 
burst out in some type of worship? We need to ask ourselves that. Secondly, worship that comes from gratitude. This woman's worship was unashamed. Unashamed. It was personal and authentic. It was unashamed. This woman opened herself up to ridicule and disgrace. She entered that place. She knew she would be condemned. For her, she was entering a den of vipers. Everybody knew who she was. But her goal wasn't to make much of herself and her goal wasn't to be seen and she wasn't trying to create a scene. She didn't go there saying, oh, this will be fun. I'll disrupt what they're doing. She went there to worship Jesus. And in that moment, that was all she cared about. Simon didn't care about Jesus. When Jesus came in, he didn't offer to wash his feet like a good host would. He didn't greet him with a a kiss on the cheek as was custom in that time. He didn't anoint his head. He didn't do any of those things. She loved Jesus. She was filled with gratitude. And she was unashamed to offer worship to Him. And she got rebuked. Exactly what she thought would happen would happen. And Jesus defended her. Let me say this to us. Be careful that your personal worship is not limited by your fear of what someone else will think. I'm not telling you to be disruptive on purpose. I'm not telling you to make much of yourself. We've probably all been in scenarios where people were worshiping and and, and it was kind of like, I think they're trying to draw attention to themselves. We don't draw attention to ourselves in worship. But do not limit your expressions of worship because you're concerned about what someone else is going to think of you. You are either drawing close to Jesus to worship Him, or you are drawing close to Jesus worried about everybody else. It can't be both. You serve the living God, or you serve man. Personal and authentic and unashamed, and finally her worship, this worship that comes from gratitude is sacrificial. She poured out to Jesus an alabaster jar of perfume likely very expensive this may have represented great wealth for her family savings for her family it cost her something to worship Christ in this moment she didn't just offer her tears she didn't just offer an act of sacrifice where she might be ridiculed, she also offered something that was very costly to her. So let me go back to my question one more time. When is the last time you and I were so moved with love for God because of the reality of the forgiveness of our sins that we were caught up in some act of worship? You just found yourself all of a sudden spontaneously singing. Just just bursting out in song. Or dance. Or shouting. Or maybe crying. Maybe silence. Maybe dropping to your knees and laying on your face. Maybe staying up all night in prayer.
Maybe getting up really early to just be with Jesus. Maybe taking time in a day and going off in solitude to just be with Him. Maybe serving somebody else. Maybe giving to them sacrificially to mimic your Savior. Or giving your time and your energy to pour into someone else. I'm not looking for a specific answer. Everybody expresses their love to Jesus differently. That's okay. It's how you were made. You don't need to worship like I do. or Anyone else in this room would. You need to worship as God has created you to express your love to Him. I'm not trying to get some response out of you, but I am asking you in the privacy of your heart, are you moved thinking about how much God has forgiven you? Because if you're truly thankful, when you're truly thankful, thankfulness will normally well up and out of you. Thankfulness is not something that you just keep to yourself. When you're really thankful, you want to do something. You may not know what to do, but you want to do something to express how thankful you are. Has that ever happened for you? Have you ever found yourself so moved by the reality of forgiveness that you were caught up in worship? And if that hasn't, it may be that you need to search your soul for whether or not you actually know Jesus. So let me go back to the emphasis of the parable. The more awareness you have of your own brokenness and sinfulness and separation from God, the more awareness you will have of how valuable grace is and the more you will love. The more you are aware of how much you've been forgiven, the more you will love. I want us to do something for a moment. If you have your worship guide, look at the front in our prayer focus for today. It is from Luke 7.47. It's this passage. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loves so much. Now church, what if that was said one day by Jesus of you? Let me tell you. Let me tell you why they love me so much. Let me tell you why they worship me the way they do. Let me tell you why they serve the way they do. Let me tell you it is because they know how much they've been forgiven. I want to ask you guys in the booth and bring the lights down, but I don't want the worship team to come up yet. I want to do something a little different. As many people as can, not moving around. I want us to sit for a moment in relative silence. I know it's not going to be completely silent. That's okay. It may be a little awkward. That's okay too. I want us to sit for a moment in silence. And I I want to ask you to contemplate the grace God has shown you. I'm not asking you to make much of sin in your life, but I am asking for you to meditate on the grace that you have been given in the forgiveness of your sins. And I want to challenge you that if you try to do that and you just have the reality, I don't know that I find grace very precious. If I'm really honest with myself, I don't think I'm that bad. 
I don't really think of myself as having a debt before God. I want to ask you if you would cry out for an awareness of your need and of the grace that is available to you. And it may be that today is a day that you step out of religious practice into a relationship with Jesus that is full of affection and worship. Maybe you know the depth of your sin, but it's just been a long time since you thought about it. The grace that you've been given. I just want us as a church for a moment to sit silently in the presence of God. One-on-one with our hearts to Him. And contemplate our debt and His grace. And after a couple of minutes, I'll come back up and I'll lead us into our time of singing and prayer.